it, it, it occurs to me or it seems to me that this somehow maps at least partially to just comedy versus tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. You have to mm -hmm. tell stories that show how someone overcomes things and, and, and reaches their best potential. That's yeah. the hero, right? Um, uh, and then we have to tell stories where, where people's faults prevent them from seeing that and they eventually fall and that's the tragedy. And we need both of these stories because when we read about a hero, it encourages us, right? right. And when we read about uh, a tragic story, it, it humiliates us. In the, yeah. in the sense of it brings humbleness in a, in a positive way. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think that's right. And I think to come back also to agape, um, like research shows that your relationship to your future self shouldn't just be a heroic yeah. uh, one. So there's, the, I think it was work done by Brody, um, uh, that you, know, you try to get people to save for the future. Mm -hmm. And, and these are academics and you go in and you give them, these are academics that are trained in rational thought and you give them all this empirical evidence about saving now and putting it in their RRSPs, that's in Canada, but you, you have the equivalent and they don't do it. They don't do it mm -hmm. instead. And then when you go back and then think about how this is an aspirational thing, you say, I want you to think of your future self because they don't want to look at their future self because their future self is weak and old and ugly. Mm -hmm. But think of your future self as an old person that you have to care for that you have to take care of. So they tried, instead of sort of building your future, they, tr they tried to trigger a, a, a compassionate relationship, a caretaking relationship to the future self. And that actually afforded people saving. Then they started saving for the future because now, right, they weren't confronting the inevitability because we all eventually lose to death, yeah. right? Uh, right? And so that's what I mean. If you, if you, if you were to take sort of, Again, we're trying to open up the hero myth. So if you were taking sort of a, a popular culture version of a myth, you, you can't conquer death, right? That's not, the, that's not the right thing, it's, right? But if you can get the appropriate agapic relationship to your future self, then people act more rationally uh, towards that future self. And that's afforded by a compassionate relationship to your future self. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today our guest once again is John Verveke. John is a cognitive scientist and psychologist from the University of Toronto, and he is the creator of the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis YouTube series. Uh, he's been on with us three times before. He's one of our favorite guests. You know, we've had so much, we've learned so much from our interactions with John. So really excited to have him back on. John and I have conversations off the air as well. And this was a conversation that we weren't sure if we were going to put on the air. Um, it was something that, you know, I wanted to talk to him about, but I thought we'd record it and see if it made a good podcast. And um, after it was done, we both felt that it'd be really powerful to share. Uh, John had um, recently discussed the work of Jordan Peterson and its relationship to Carl Jung um, with his friend Anderson Todd. Now, they had some great points, but there was also a few things that I disagreed with, and they really kind of resonated with certain things in our work at, with Evolve Move Play, and so I wanted to discuss those with John. So this became a really fantastic dialogue. We both learned a lot from each other, and um, yeah, it was really a pleasure to have John on and have this conversation. So I'm going to get you to John here in a second, but while I've got you, I just wanted to mention that our Introduction to Natural Parkour course is once again on sale. Um, this has been incredibly well reviewed by everyone who's tried it. We know people are out there needing to get exercise, stuck inside, not able to go to the gym. Um, 
you know, not able to engage in their normal movement practice. And we think this is a great place to get started with a outdoor natural movement practice, something you can do in the environment around you without access to a gym. So if you're interested in that, hit the link in the description. Um, without further ado, John Verveke. So we were just talking about uh, hero myths and yeah. how they're interpreted and uh, the work of Jordan Peterson. Um, and so, as you know, essentially, I had been training parkour for many years and I came into um, to, came to this point where I exhausted, I guess, the archetype of the professional athlete as a way yeah. to inspire towards something that was um, more profound and took me deeper into my practice. Um, and so I went deep into a, a place of just orienting towards play and play was very powerful. And it was, uh, you know, from a, like a Petersonian perspective, I, I was too ordered, too oriented towards goals and I broke myself down. I couldn't meet them and there wasn't enough novelty to keep my, my stuff fresh. And then I went very high in novelty. I was doing new things, just going out and playing every day. Um, and then I, I hit a wall there and an interesting thing happened with my teaching, which is that um, I noticed that, you know, I had a lot of analytical propositional knowledge that I could share with students. Right. And that had some impact. You know, they clearly respected the, the research that I had done, but it didn't move them to the same degree as sharing my personal life stories. Right, right, right. And so I became very interested in narrative. And that's just happened to be right when Joe Rogan interviewed Jordan Peterson. So I'm, you know, I'm more to the right. So there were certain things that, that Peterson was saying politically that, that were intriguing to me. Um, and I was interested in the story, but then as the interview went from political to narrative, I was like, ah, here's a window into this thing that I've been trying to understand. So, you know, I then consumed, you know, 180 hours of lectures or something from. <laughs> That's very daunting. Yeah. <laughs> October through, uh, through March and I went to tea and I don't know if I've told you this, but one of the interesting things that happened during that thing was prior to that, I was listening to all of these podcasts that were about physical training, right? It's like, how do I make people run faster, jump higher, have better skill acquisition. And then I was listening to these Jordan Peterson podcasts and he's quite a tangential thinker. He kind of like, it's hard yeah. to get what the point of all his stuff is, but somehow it was fascinating to me, but I kept asking myself, why am I spending so much time here as opposed to something that's more directly relevant to my work? There's your word. Um, <laughs> so then I went to teach my first seminar and I, and I started talking through my normal talking points, which a lot of it was in, sort of implicitly stored in my memory. I didn't have it stored in a document somewhere. It just came out when I was teaching. And what I noticed was all of a sudden there was all these things that I learned from Peterson that were kind of uh, just showing up in parallel. And it seemed like they were, they were stacked on top of what I was talking about. It was like, um, we look at this, the, the, the basic idea of how do I orient myself in life to grow as a human being, you can see that on a everything in your life level, or you can see it on the, the, the movement practice level. Mm -hmm. And of course, my work's very deeply influenced by an evolutionary perspective and a developmental perspective and having that kind of, much. of, uh, of Piaget and evolutionary biology ideas into uh, a psychological perspective. Uh, was really powerful for me. So anyways, I, um, that's, that's how I kind of got really engaged in this stuff. And then I found your work and that's also, you know, given me so many layers of ways to, to think about how we go about this project of, of helping grow people. Um, and, and so I took on this idea that essentially we have to be oriented towards something, right? We have to go, um, we, we have to have a goal, but a lot of times the type of goals that, that we were setting in the, in the movement community, they were really too narrow. Yeah. They weren't aspirational enough. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we had, um, I had this, I had this conflict between I was trying, I was my goal, my explicit goals were around competing in parkour, but mm -hmm. parkour competitions aside from the ones that I put on were all indoors and right. I didn't like training indoors. So I was highly motivated to go out and train in the woods, but I was supposed to compete indoors. So I had this goal versus motivation conflict. Yeah. Um, and eventually I just went with my motivations and that worked out really well for me, but then that was too whimsical in a way. Right. And then it needed yeah. something. And so the idea of the heroic archetype became really powerful 
as a uh, as a as a, a big enough goal to contain my motivations. Mm-hmm. Structured lots of things that kept me moving in a direction that seemed to improve me in my practice and also more broadly as a human being and in my relationships. Right, right, right. Um, so now I, you know, the reason that I reached out to you for this call, as I mentioned earlier, was that uh, that there was something in the way that you and Anderson Todd were talking about the heroic archetype that didn't ring true for me, mm-hmm. um, which is this idea that we're, as a culture, we're addicted to the heroic archetype and that, um, that essentially we, it's almost, it's, it's not a bad thing, but we can become toxic with it. Um, and it, it seemed to me that there's, and I haven't read Jung, so as I said before, I, I don't know if this distinction, the way that I'm looking at it comes from Jung or comes from P, uh, Jordan Peterson, but- yeah, Sure. But- um, well, Let's talk about your take on it, because yeah, that's what- Yeah, yeah. It's more- sure, so I just wanted to, to, to caveat that. But my, my way of looking at it was essentially that the heroic archetype ends up being, um, it feels very similar to me to what you've described as the divine double or the aspirational. It's a representation of your highest potential. And it's a representation of what comes out of the mode of being in which you make yourself confront anomaly when it occurs. Mm -hmm. You seek to find the space between uh, order and, and, and chaos, right? The way is that place where you're balanced between the two. So I want to, I want to, so then there's this, there's this conflation. It feels like between the idea of the hero, which for me, Socrates is a hero. He's not a warrior. He's a sage, but his, he is proactively confronting anomaly and helping the world be made into a better order. Right. He's going out and finding chaos, dealing with it, creating better order out of it. He's confronting the tyranny of the state and bringing, you know, a little bit of chaos where it's needed. That's interesting. There's a, there's, you know, um, Peterson talks a lot about the dragon slayer archetype. And, and I talked about that a lot, influenced by him. But there's the, the flip side to that heroic archetype, which is the idea of confronting the tyrannical father, right? Uh, the yep. negative aspect of our culture. Um, and man, I have so many <laughs> ideas here. Uh, so give me a second to, to unpack them. So, so I was talking about this idea that we're, we're confronting the dragon. We're, we're slaying the dragon. That was my first, first mm-hmm. sort of iteration of what is it that we're doing in parkour? It's like, when, or martial arts for that uh, matter. Yeah. Okay. Surfing or whatever. You go out and you give yourself a challenge. And it's chaotic and, it's, and it, it, it exposes you to novelty and it takes you to your edge. And through that, you get to grow, right? And so it's like your character development is the gold that you confront the dragon to, to sure, receive. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so Jordan talks about the idea that this is, that this is essentially a male myth and that the female equivalent of this myth is the, um, the beauty and the beast myth. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the, the male hero confronts the dragon or the tyranny of the state, the female hero helps bring, um, a, a monstrous man into into balance. So, I was telling these stories at all my workshops. But I was just telling the the dragon slayer archetype. So, on one of my workshops, I told the the the, the Beauty and the Beast archetype, um, and I told it very poorly. <laughs> but I was confronted by my female students. They were not happy about it. They didn't uh, they didn't feel like it represented them, mm-hmm. and that was quite a difficult uh, experience. This was at our long. Well, good for you for doing that. Good yeah. for you for doing that. And so, you know, we were probably up till midnight or something just talking through that. And then I went and I couldn't sleep and I was laying in, in my bed just thinking. And, and all of a sudden I remembered the story of St. George and the dragon. Right? And I, I realized that in that story, there's two heroes that confront the dragon. There's, the, uh, there's George, but there's also the princess. Mm-hmm. There's a couple key heroic moments with the princess that are kind of not noticed. One is, and it depends on which version of the story, but one of the versions of the story that I've seen, um, 
George asks the princess, says to the princess that I'll save you. And she says, no, don't sacrifice you for, or yourself for me. So she doesn't want to have someone else sacrifice herself for her. That's her heroic moment. But then um, he frees her from her chains and he attacks, uh, or he attacks the dragon. He comes back and frees her from her chains. The dragon is enraged and chases him down and he's trapped behind a rock. And she throws her girdle at the dragon and the dragon and uh, the girdle wraps itself around the dragon's neck. And then by a miracle, the dragon's tamed. And then there's this super weird coda at the end of the story, which is that um, they walk back to her village with the dragon and the people start throwing stones at them. And George pulls out his sword and cuts off the dragon's head. And so what, what occurred to me all of a sudden in that moment, as I was dealing with having pissed off all my female students, was that that confrontation with the dragon isn't always destruction of the dragon. No, that's exactly also right. holding space and giving and, and holding something so that it can come into order. Yeah. So there's two aspects of, of the chaotic, undifferentiated experience. There's this thing that is just threatening and needs to be destroyed. And there's the thing that just needs to be given space and given love in order to grow into order. Also, it needs to be given a vehicle of transformation. I mean, the point about the girdle, right, is it affords the dragon uh, undergoing a significant transformation. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and we were sort of talking before this, uh, and, and I want to, I want to first of all acknowledge that I think you're right that um, there was a conflation in the criticism of the hero with the warrior, precisely because that conflation is pervasive in the culture. And I think Joseph Campbell did lean towards that um, uh, in certain ways. Uh, but there's a couple of things I want to say. I think what, what I, how I would revise the critique, and I think you're already exemplifying that, is to try and bring out a much more multifaceted understanding of the hero archetype. Uh, one that would readily and would readily give priority to, uh, the, the, to the sage figure. And for, as you said, the role, I think uh, another example of the thing you're talking about, the role of, um, the, I, I don't like using the masculine and the feminine here, but let, let's use that here. So I'm thinking of the Buddha, right? And the Buddha uh, uh, is, starves himself and he's sitting on the riverbank and he falls into the river and he's about to drown. He's being overwhelmed by this project that he's undertaken and he's saved by a little girl who gives him rice, right? And it's the same sort of thing here. Um, uh, right, that 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 there, and, and then he 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 pulls back from an overly hubristic idea that he's going to conquer himself, um, and he pulls back to the middle path, and that's what I was trying to articulate also when I was saying, you know, that there's that the, the, the hero myth should be set into an ecology with the the myths about hubris, and you know the myth of Icarus and Phaeton and Arachne, and and the idea that. You know, and, and Anderson sort of corrected me on this too, and I don't know if people picked up on it enough. He said, you know, the divine double isn't isn't God. The divine double is an intermediary between you and, and the ultimate. And you have to, right? There's a tendency, uh, like there's a tendency for hubris because if you don't keep the divine double, your heroic future self, separate from um, the ultimate, then you can, of course, subject yourself to very significant forms of inflation, which was a deep, a deep concern of Jung when they undertook uh, uh, the heroic journey, that they would be subject to uh, uh, kinds of inflation. And so, so it sounds like, pardon me, go ahead, go ahead. Sounds like there's two conflations that we can fall into that are dangerous. One is to yeah. conflate the current self with the ultimate potential of the self. Yes, yeah. And yeah. then the other is to conflate even the ultimate potential with the self with the archetype of the ultimate. It's yes, yes, very much. That's very much. And, and either so, will lead to a dangerous hubris. A very dangerous hubris. And so the hubris, uh, you know, the, the, the hubris myths are designed to remind us of the combinatorial explosive. That's the counter side, right? For, yes, you have to deal with anomaly, but you have to remember that the anomaly isn't just an obstacle to you. It is a continual reminder right, of the combinatorially explosive nature of reality, that there's a sense in which that always has to be, that always has to be kept um, sort of in people's awareness. Um, and, and, and part of that goes towards the argument that I'm trying to make about sacredness, mm-hmm. that we need to, 
I guess I'll, I'll use your language if, if that's we need to sort of supplement the heroic archetype with a, a, a recapturing of the sense of sacredness mm -hmm. um, uh, so that we have, because that's what the gods represent in the hubris, right? They represent that overwhelming, the inexhaustible nature of reality that can, if, if the human pushes too far, will then crush the human in response. And so I think, and I, I mean, to be, to be fair to me, I think you're doing that in the kind of work you're doing, right? There's a, I think you, you are natural, and maybe I'm helping you explicate something here. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you have the heroic archetype, but you're also doing all this exposure, right, uh, to. So when people are doing parkour, yes, they're, they're dealing with anomaly, but the anomaly is also set within the context of this encompassing nature, right, that bespeaks to them you know, the inexhaustible aspects of reality that so that their whatever triumph they have over this landfall or this this grip is set into a broader context uh, of the natural world. I think that's why, I mean, isn't that part of the intuitive, your deep intuition of why parkour out in nature is so much more valuable than parkour uh, within an enclosed man-made setting? Because the man-made setting removes the mythos of of hubris, right? Because it's all safely man-made and predetermined. So that's, I mean, if you'll allow me here, because I want to acknowledge that you've made some uh, legitimate counterpoints, but that's how I would now shift my critique and say we need to then really un unpack um, the hero archetype, reintegrate it with the hubris mythologies and make a, you know, understand the hero archetype in a way that has a lot more to do with the sage than the warrior. I would, that's how I would really want to put it. And one more, one more thing about this, if, if, sorry, if you just allow me, I'll, I'll give you another extended period. Yeah. Is, right, um, and then this was a point that uh, I think Anderson was trying to make is that, and again, I think you're already doing this in the, in the practice. You set the individual task, which the heroic archetype tends to, in, it tends to focus people on, the project of individuation. And this is where I tend to like Tillich better than um, uh, Jung, because Tillich said, yes, individuation, but individuation and participation are always bound up together. They're interdefining. And that's why you, you, do the, you, do the, you do the group work as well as the individual work, and you set them into a dynamic, self-correcting process. And I think that also needs to be brought in and integrated with the, hero, uh, the hero's journey uh, mythology. So that's what I want. That's how I'd now want to sort of reformulate my point. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's great. Um, I have a, a few things floating around in my head there. One is, uh, well, I guess I, I think I mostly heard you talk about this, but maybe I've heard, but basically it's, it's, it's like we need practices that bring courage into us and we need to be- yes, I have talked about that, yes, we do. So that's we need all four of them. We need all four of the of the virtues. Yeah. Right. And that's something that I share with George. Uh, so we, you know, our, our our society is talking a lot about justice, and we only talk about social justice. Mm -hmm. um, and Plato, for example, made a very good argument that we need to pay more careful attention to that social justice has to be in anagogic relationship with inner justice, yeah. the the correct relationship between the psyche. And then, of course, Sofferson, which gets badly translated as temperance. Sofferson is that you've, you've structured your participatory and perspectival knowing so that you are naturally tempted towards the good, right? And that, that is so relevant to our discussion about aspiration, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's courage. And courage isn't, and then, you know, this is where Aristotle is so helpful. Uh, you know, courage without wisdom isn't courage. Courage is not about just facing danger or risk. Uh, courage is about being able to... It's more, it's more appropriately thought of courage as the ability to see through fear to, so that you're not blinded by your fear, so you can see through it to what really matters. And then there's wisdom, and, all, and, and that is the, the, the coordinating virtue. Uh, you know, and, you, know you, you and I have talked about this at length, and you have to be there's doing all of it. Pardon me? There's agape, right? Where's the love? So I, so I think agape, and I made, I made this argument in the series, and I think this is one of the great Christian innovations. I think agape... That's why Paul calls it the most excellent way. Agape is the best kind of sophrosin. Uh, I, I think agape is the best when we can bring agape into this. That is how we can engender that 
transformation of our salience landscape so we are not egocentrically oriented, so that we are oriented towards the good, so that we're oriented to what, what, what's true, good, and beautiful. Because we want to now, we're oriented towards a love of those conditions that make meaning and make, and make meaning makers more possible. So I think of agape as, as the, I think this is one of the great Christian innovations. I'm not a Christian, you know I argue for non-theism, but that's where I think it, it, that, that was one of the great insights that Jesus and Paul gave us, is that agape is one of the most profound ways of, of, of reformulating and I think improving the, the Greek virtue of sophism. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we, the last, our last conversation, I was showing you the, the set of, of, of virtues that, that are, are behind. Yeah. It's always interesting to see what are, what are, where are we putting the center of those virtues? Um, so in, you know, just to go back to the idea of the hero's journey and where, where it might be going wrong or being interpreted in a way that, that doesn't lead us to our best divine self, let's say. Yes. Yeah. So one aspect of that was that it, it's like we need a real, it, it, it occurs to me or it seems to me that this somehow maps at least partially to just comedy versus tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. You have to mm -hmm. tell stories that show how someone overcomes things and, and, and reaches their best potential. That's yeah. the hero, right? Um, uh, and then we have to tell stories where, where people's faults prevent them from seeing that and they eventually fall and that's the tragedy. And we need both of these stories because when we read about a hero, it encourages us, right? right. And when we read about uh, a tragic story, it, it humiliates us. In the, yeah. in the sense of it brings humbleness in a, in a positive way. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think that's right. And I think to come back also to agape, um, like research shows that your relationship to your future self shouldn't just be a heroic yeah. uh, one. So there's, the, I think it was work done by Brody. Um, uh, I hope I'm not getting his name wrong. That, you know, you try to get people to save for the future. Mm -hmm. And, and these are academics and you go in and you give them, these are academics that are trained in rational thought and you give them all this empirical evidence about saving now and putting it in their RRSPs, that's in Canada, but you, you have the equivalent and they don't do it. They don't do it. Mm -hmm. Instead, and then when you go back and then think about how this is an aspirational thing, you say, I want you to think of your future self because they don't want to look at their future self because their future self is weak and old and ugly. Mm -hmm. But think of your future self as an old person that you have to care for that you have to take care of. So they tried, instead of sort of building your future, they, tr they tried to trigger a, a, a compassionate relationship, a caretaking relationship to the future self. And that actually afforded people saving. Then they started saving for the future because now, right, they weren't confronting the inevitability because we all eventually lose to death, yeah. right? Uh, right? And so that's what I mean. If you, if you, if you were to take sort of, Again, we're trying to open up the hero myth. So if you were taking sort of a, a popular culture version of a myth, you, you can't conquer death, right? That's not, the, that's not the right thing, it's, right? But if you can get the appropriate agapic relationship to your future self, then people act more rationally uh, towards that future self. And that's afforded by a compassionate relationship to your future self. Um, and again, the way, uh, like, if if we can if we can bring that into uh, the hero's journey, uh, that'd be great. I, I I think that that would be wonderful. And you know, and, and maybe there's sense there's a way in which uh, the 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 hero figures of like the Buddha or Jesus tend to bring that in uh, to a certain fashion, and that needs to be uh, paid more attention to. Sorry, that was a bit of a speech, but I was trying to show you a, a concrete example of what I what I'm trying to talk about. Yeah, I'm, I love having these exchanges of ideas, right? Like, you know, yeah. I don't know exactly what's going to happen when, when you and I talk, and that's what makes it so interesting. Very much, very much. I, I, lo I like that so much. So um, I kind of got lost there, but I, let me circle back a little bit because there was something Please. that I wanted to point out about. Uh, so in, in that conversation with Anderson Todd, I felt like there was this conflation with the, the warrior is the hero. And, and I also experience that when I talk about the heroic archetype within my own work. There are people who, who react negatively towards that word. Of yeah, I, I think that's a fair point you make. And I want to, I've already acknowledged yeah. it. I'm going to acknowledge it again. Yep. Sure, sure enough. Good, good. The good reason point. I wanted to circle back to that, though, is because I think in that St. George narrative, there's a really interesting point. And I think it's, it, 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 it aligns with what you're saying. So mm -hmm. 
in the St. George narrative, we have, we can call them the feminine and masculine aspect of the hero, um, but they're not the male and female aspect of the hero. And this was a no, really- I think they're more of yin and yang. That I find more, more helpful. So when I, when I had that realization, right, that, that the hero not only destroys the dragon, the hero also tames the dragon. Um, I had this really interesting experience, which was this, this sense of recognition that, um, that the most dangerous things that I do actually rely to a degree on the yin. It's a very interesting thing. So, um, you know, in the, in the, in, in Chinese martial arts is Wu Wei, right? Or Mushi. Yeah. The idea of doing without doing. Um, mm -hmm. So when I'm working myself up to a jump where I'm say 30 feet off the ground and if I fall, I'll die um, or be very badly injured. Um, it takes a lot of yang energy. It's very like, it's very warrior to get myself to commit to the jump. But before I jump, um, I don't jump if I feel like I'm forcing myself into the jump. No, you can't force it. No. I can't force it. So I wait. I, I, I look at it and I wait and I, and I wait for this feeling. And the feeling is as if the jump has already happened. And, and so there's a, it, it, what it feels like is assertion takes me to the edge of the jump, but surrender allows me to jump. Yeah, because you're making a space for the self-organizing to yeah. occur. You're making a space for the insight and the flow. I, I totally get that. And, um, and that's, that's sort of the, the aspect of the hero. Some hero myths emphasize the aspect of grace, that which is given by the gods and mm -hmm. not something that the hero in any way earns. Yes, I think that's an important point too. So, so then it's like you, you walk through that tunnel. Um, and, and, and so, so what I saw then was that, um, that there's this, there's this aspect of the feminine heroic that, mm -hmm. uh, that I wasn't conscious of, that I wasn't describing and giving to people, but also that if you look at the St. George story, it's, it's, it's suppressed in the story. There's something very yeah. patriarchal about that story because St. George has a name and the princess does not have a name. Yeah, yeah, when, much. when, when you confront the mortality of the princess, it's through the perspective of her father and how he won't see her live to her wedding day, right? And, um, and then when she achieves her miracle, right? She tames the dragon by a miracle and they take this dragon back to the village. The village rejects her gift. Yeah, very much. The hero has to destroy what she has brought into order. And right, so for right. me, it's like, you know, it's, it's this extraordinarily symbolic idea of a culture that has lost its ability to articulate and to respect the female aspect of the heroic. Well, okay, this is fantastic work you're doing, Rafe. I, I mean, I think, or I, I like what you're doing right now. I think it is responding to uh, a lot of the critical points that I think are legitimate. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, 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 think, I think that's excellent. You know, so I, so in, in, in comparing your work and Jordan's work, right? So in Jordan's work, I think there all these things that I'm talking about are represented, but um, but there's a lean, there's a bias in Jordan's work. It, it feels to me like Jordan has has a very or has a very strong association with the, the warrior archetype, mm -hmm. and he he emphasizes that aspect of the story. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that he that he identifies the Beauty and the Beast as the female version of the same story. Uh, I think shows a, a, a lack of full appreciation of the power of the feminine because you can see that feminine beauty and the beast story as, as an example of that power of containing something and bringing it into order. But when you frame it as only the story of beauty and the beast, what you've done is made women only, um, you've made their only story in relationship to men. So you've essentially placed them under men. Whereas yeah. if you recognize that actually all of us have, a, have to have access to that same power, um, it's profound. And it's like, I'm a father. You know, my children are little chaos monkeys. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not slaying dragons when I'm dealing with my kids. It's, it's yeah. giving them that agopic love and that structure and holding that allows them to become ordered beings. And, and so I think that there's something, you know, very profound in that. And I, you know, I love the tension between your work and Jordan's work because it, to me, there's, there's so much about meaning and about the heroic archetype that I get from Jordan, but then there's this invitation more towards the sage. Um, yes. Yeah. In your work. And, and, and the dynamic sort of interplay between the two of them has been extraordinarily informative for me. Um, well, thank you about that, Rafe. And, um,
I mean, I mean, and and the and the criticisms that I mean, this is what this this is this is a gift you're giving me. This is what I wanted the criticisms that Anderson and I made to do. I mean, and we we, we were very clear of framing of that. We were trying to provoke dialogue and response. We were we, there was no we and we kept saying there's really powerful insights in his work and right um, there was no attempt to debunk or demolish. You know, I don't believe in that. So I I, I just want to I'm just taking this moment to express gratitude because this is exactly what I wanted to come out. This is the this is the kind of response where we're getting you know we're getting a, a refinement a reciprocal reconstruction of both positions and some and insight and creativity are being brought to bear on this. So I, I mean thank you. I think this is great. This is what I want. Yeah. So so if we separate the idea of the hero or we expand the idea of the hero so that it once again contains the idea of of the feminine aspect or um, you, you, we don't even have to, to hold that, that idea. I mean, it, it's probably a very powerful idea in certain ways, but also it's a limiting idea. But we that's, can, why I said, that's why I like the yin and the yang, because it's much more comprehensive and it's but sort of metaphysically grounded rather than sort of gender grounded. And, uh, and it's ultimately what, you know, what is in Taoism and, and things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I think if we do that, and I think, like I say, I think we bring in the sage components and also... Um, you know, uh, the, the, the connection uh, of encouragement to uh, uh, the other virtues, especially uh, humility. Yeah. Humility and encouragement. And that, that's, so that's a really interesting thing that I wanted to touch on because that's kind of a mystery to me, actually. I mean, it's a bit of a mystery and it's something that's very profound to me because in my line of work, right, in people who are creating, you know, big movement uh, big movement tribes, right? Whether it's mm. CrossFit or Bikram yoga or Ashtanga yoga, etc. What we see is that there is very often that conflation of the individual at the top of the hierarchy with their heroic self, right? Yeah. yeah. So there's a persona that, that you're this kind of, you know, heroic individual, um, that becomes overwhelming and then you see this horrible abuse of students yes that's that was one of my concerns right yeah. very much one of my concerns and in my own journey you know um like I, I founded my first company in parkour uh with you know when i was 27 years old okay so i it was a non-profit that a friend of mine had formed and then i had been on the board and then we formed a, a teaching company together so i was the head instructor of this company and um and i made a very hubristic mistake right i i i thought of myself as an extraordinarily brilliant thinker in the okay. in the parkour space and i was going to create this really amazing program and then all of the staff that i worked with were essentially looked at as vessels to transmit that message forward. Oh yes, yeah. So this set me up for um, for a blindness to the to what they brought that was positive and an overemphasis on what they brought that was negative, right? Because all they could be seen as is imperfect reflections of what I was trying to create. So eventually, I had to leave that business for a variety of reasons. Um, but I had to look really deeply at the fact that I had set up the circumstances that would, that burned this situation out. Right. Um, right. There are other elements, but the other elements I had no control over. So I lost, you know, I, I had my, my business partner basically say he needed me to step down as the head coach. And I said, no, I don't want to. <laughs> right. Oh. And we had a, a negotiation for a period of time. And I was like, well, I already have this idea of natural movement that I've been trying to pursue for years. It's just time for me to walk away. And so I walked away. Um, and, uh, and, and I had a, a choice essentially to focus on the negative aspects of what everybody else had done or on the negative aspects of what I had done. And since I didn't have control over what everyone else had done, I chose to, to, to do that. Right. I chose mm -hmm. to, to humble myself and say that there's a reason that I, that I've, I've done this. And in, in the prospect of that, like I ended up taking a personality test and I scored very high on, um, on narcissistic tendencies in my personality. Mm -hmm. And I knew that about myself. I'd seen that in, um, in people around me and people in my family. Um, it was quite shocking to my wife though. <laughs> she was very, very concerned when she realized that. Um, but, well. 
with I, with good reason. I yeah, mean, <laughs> of a relationship going bad, right? It, so mm -hmm. I mean, that was that was a rational response on her part. Yeah, um, but I, I somehow managed to try to own what I had, where I had gone wrong. And I went into my next business, you know, and, and more and more of the people that I work with, I always see it as this process of, of serving the tribe, right? Right. And so if I could go back to that original business, it was like w the goal of the person at the top is to recognize the best of what's possible from everybody else so that they can serve bringing that out because well, that's what I mean about the individuation participation. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Brought together. Yep. Yep. And so when you, so this comes up for me because that idea that you're pointing out that if we, if we become too attached to that, that single heroic figure going out and confronting things, um, that, that when we over identify with this, then, well, everybody else is our dragon, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you're yeah. going around slaying all the dragons around you all the time, what you're doing is uh, destroying your relationships. Well, I, I think that's, yeah, I think what you just said was incredibly astute, and the, and the personal example I think really, uh, really uh, grounds it um, for people. I think that's exactly right. Um, and see, and, and, and why the figure of Socrates is so important to me um, is he simultaneously knows what he doesn't know, right? The, uh, but 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 he but he links that to what his wisdom. So the humility and the aspiration for wisdom. He found a way to deeply weave them together, and that's why he becomes the midwife of other people. Right? Mm -hmm. That's how he understands it. And you know, he, he does claim to know certain things. He knows how to be a midwife. The unexamined life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. You know uh, what to care about, and but right, he knows all of that. But the, the one of the things that for me makes him exemplary is precisely that he found a way to deeply interweave uh, the humility and the heroism together. Because he was, of course, very heroic, as you point out. In, in many, uh, many important ways. Um, uh, and so I, I think, um, and, and the fact, and the individuation and the participation are bound up together even in his practice. The Socratic practice is both, his, his, his self-knowledge and his knowledge and his interaction with the other are bound together uh, 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 so deeply. Um, so I think, it, you know, it might do us well also to pay more attention uh, to the sage figures, especially figures like Socrates, uh, because of the way I think they give us a more well-rounded modeling of uh, of the of the uh, of the sacred second self of of the divine double of the uh, of our heroic journey. Um, so, so I think that's one of the things that comes out of this discussion that we're having. You know, a, a recommendation of where we should reorient uh, and what we should emphasize. So, if you go back to what Anderson said about the idea that we're addicted to the heroic archetype, let's call that the warrior aspect of the heroic archetype. What yeah. you can see is that we have many Thors, many Hulks, many Wolverines, but do we have any Socrates, yeah. any Buddhas, any yeah. Jesuses yeah. being portrayed in our popular media in a way that is profound yeah. and meaningful? Exactly, I think that's exactly right. So I like, again, thank you. I, I like this reformulation of the criticism. I think it's much more perspicacious and much more accurate and therefore also much more helpful. Yeah. So I think this is, yeah, I totally agree with that. I wanted to, to touch, there's something that came out for me on that idea of uh, individuation and per uh, precipitation. Uh, precipitation. <laughs> um, it's been raining a lot here in Washington. Um, no. So, uh, so what I've noticed over the years, right, as I've crafted Evolve Move Play and as I've invested in these practices, um, there, there's this interesting sense where achievement, instead of driving hubris, seems to drive humility mm. and gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I, and it's, 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 I think to some degree, it's like an intention that you have to set that is to to see what is achieved, not as the act of some, of, of yourself as a central figure, right? If you, if you invest in the narrative of yourself as the, as the sole central figure, it, in some sense, it's like you have to diminish the people around you. Mm -hmm. I, I remember reading, I read this book right after I left Parkville Visions called Tribal Leadership. And, you know, I, 
I won't say it's a profound book, but it had a profound meaning to me. And basically what they said is that there are five types of organizations, right? Mm -hmm. The cultures of an organization depends, shows how effective it is. The one is people who think the world sucks, right? And Mm -hmm. people who just think the world is terrible, um, they tend not to have any morals at all and they're willing to to sort of backstab each other and they're highly conflictual. Um, The second is people who think my life sucks, right? Or, you know, and this, is P- and this is what they said most corporations are like, right? People can see that the world could be fine for other people, but for whatever reason, they're oppressed by their manager. People don't respect their talents, et cetera. And this results in people who are essentially apathetic. Mm-hmm. And the next level is people who think I'm great, right? Um, and people who are in the I'm great idea can be very productive individually, but they don't coordinate very well. Yeah, right? yeah. And the th- another thing is that for every three you have in your organization, they produce twos yeah. because the, the orientation towards the individual greatness in some sense is always competitive towards the people around you. And if you are going to be great, then you're greater than the people around you. Right, right, right. And then the next level is the we're great, right? And the most effective organization, we are great. Oh, we are great, right. right. And that's usually um, oriented in... So, so you could say that I'm great is like, I'm better than the next guy in the office. We're great is we're better than our competitor. Mm-hmm. And in the book, they said that it was very late that they discovered the organizations that had moved past this to the world is great. Ah. And that when you have the orientation that the world is great, you can't even see your competitors. You're so in love with the work you're doing and what it's producing that it doesn't even matter what your competitors are doing anymore. They're irrelevant to you. Um, and this is and this is where the highest levels of productivity happen. Yeah. So I saw myself as at Parkle Visions, I was playing the, I was in the third mindset, right? Mm-hmm. And it was it was producing twos around me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we invest the ego in some sense in the community, when we say, this is, you know, in my workshops, right? I, I noticed that I noticed that that people talk about tribe and how much the community meant to them. And I had at some sense I was like, this was not me. Like I didn't do that. Like I I I was the lone wolf who went and trained in the woods by myself. I was a I was egotistical and kind of harsh and brutally honest and not very tactful. Um, how would I create that? Right. But it was like the people who came who appreciated other aspects of my work, they created a culture. Yes. And yes. I was really just not so stupid as to ignore it. And I let it, I let it propitiate or not propitiate it. I let it um, propagate. I let it propagate itself. And then I became subject to it. Right. But that's actually the most powerful in, in some sense, the most powerful thing that's happened in my work. And I can only see it through the lens of being blessed by the students who've shown up. So that that's, that's, so there's three things that came to mind that, first of all, the, the, in our previous discussion, we talked about sort of, or one of our previous discussions, we've had so many, I can't remember which one it was, <laughs> but we talked about this, you know, regaining the ability to fall in love with the world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, um, and so that very much touches on what you just said. Um, and, and then um, the value and importance of distributed cognition, where I'm turning, a, as you know, I'm turning a lot of my work uh, right now, and I think there's sort of a zeitgeist of people sort of reorienting uh, towards that. You definitely see that on, in uh, uh, forums like uh, Rebel Wisdom and uh, Future mm-hmm. Thinkers. And then, and then the, the, but I think what it, it comes back down to is again is the importance of the ver- uh, of software, mm-hmm. right? A- about that training of your perspectival and participatory knowing, so you you go from being egocentric to ontocentric, and and you're very much caught up in you come to value the anagoge rather than the ego aggrandizement. And I think that's, I think that's why Sofferson has to be brought back up as, a, as an important virtue because Sofferson is basically where, I mean, where you get that sort of training in humility that's not humiliation to use the more modern meaning of humility. It's a sense of humility, but as you said, it's an empowering one. It's like, wait, 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 I can, I can sort of become coupled to something that takes me beyond myself and that's a good thing but you use the you use the 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 verb surrender you know which is at the heart of the whole religion of islam and that sense 
uh, of that, that we are at our most graceful, and grace originally meant to be given a gift, we are at our most graceful when we have that capacity to couple ourselves, to marry ourselves to something that is beyond us. Like you just related in that story there. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that's central. Yeah, it's as if there's two paths to sort of containing the ego, right? Mm -hmm. One is the path of, of essentially like limiting the self. And the other is the path of letting the self disappear into the rest of things. Yeah. And I think the second one, to use some of my language, the second one is where we, we're exacting the machinery of the self. The self is a, machi a machine for gluing things together and making, giving them a kind of autopoetic life. And we can exact that to glue other things together and help them take on a life of their own. And I think that's a very, I think that's, and, and I think that's, I mean, I think that's part of what was meant originally by the middle path, the path between self-indulgence and self-negation. It's, it's, both of those are still very self-centered in that they're fixated on the self as opposed to, no, no, right? The, the idea of letting go and opening up um, uh, to the depths of reality as, the, as what the middle path is actually about. The middle path isn't, a, isn't some sort of median position between self-indulgence and self-destruction. It's, 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 it, right? it's instead that reorientation from egocentric to ontocentric that just says, no, no, well, the self is, 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 is something that can be exacted into something beyond itself. And I think that's the core uh, of the middle path, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, for some reason, it pops into my head that we're using the word self, and we, we're talking about Jung to begin this, and, and we're using the self in a way that, that's the opposite of how Jung would use it, right? Yeah. We're, you, we're, we're meaning the ego, right? Yeah, we're meeting the ego, uh, and many people have pointed out that that was kind of an implicitous choice of terms yeah. uh, on Jung's part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, something like Atman uh, would have perhaps been better. Um, um, yeah, and then and then and, and and of course, and and you know, he he was influenced by Vedanta, right? And so the and and you should never think of Atman. You should always think of Atman Brahman. That right, right, the the, the, the self within. And the self without have a non-dual relationship, a non-logical identity with each other, because that's exactly what we're talking about. If, we, if you really know yourself as Atman, you are not oriented inwardly. You're you're oriented inward to outwardly, which mm. is what what you and I are talking about here. I think that's what yeah, we're yeah, absolutely. The the idea of the middle path struck me because I I've been not not in thinking about this in in relationship to buddhism but it, it it calls to mind something i've been thinking about a lot in in how one trains effectively mm. which struck me that all of a sudden that that what i was thinking about and how one trains effectively is also really how one should treat oneself and then really how one should treat others mm. so um what i what i thought about for many years is this idea that in training we have or in in a practice of going towards something we, we need a balance between self-discipline and self-care, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so if, if I don't, if I, in order to get somewhere, I have to do things even though I don't necessarily want to do them, even though they're hard and even though there's gr drudgery and pain and, and struggle involved in it. On the other hand, if I become so self-disciplined that I make myself train when my body isn't fully recovered, and I, I stop sleeping in order to do it. I'm actually undercutting my ability to make those gains that I'm going out there seeking. So I have to care for myself. Um, I have to be able to give myself rest. I have to be able to feed myself well. I have to be able to give myself, you know, emotional resources that will take care of me. Um, so I was thinking, for a while I've been talking about this, thinking about meditating on this idea of how do I become, how do I find the optimal place between self-discipline and self-care? And then I had this realization that Self-discipline and self-care can be seen as the positive end, and then there's a shadow of each of them. Mm. Self-discipline, when it is out of balance, becomes self-abuse. Mm -hmm. I'm training now, I'm running, let's say I'm running, you know, and I'm running because I want to get better at marathons. But maybe I'm really running because I hate myself, and yeah. Because, yeah. because the mortification of my flesh feels like something I deserve. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of self-care is it's like, okay, 
maybe you're just indulging yourself. Maybe you're just seeking hedonism, right? So it's like, oh, I need to eat enough food and I need to eat food that nourishes me. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm just eating cookies because, you know, whatever. Maybe I'm taking these chemicals to, to, to help myself. So we have self-indulgence and self. So we have the shadow sides. So we're trying to, to move ourselves up towards discipline and care and away from these. Yeah. And then what struck me as I, was, as I was playing with these ideas was that, well, how do we get there? How do we get there? And in order to get there, um, it's like we have to start at logos because we have to, we have to be able to know enough about ourself, yep. Self-knowledge identify yep. how we do this, and then agape. Because if you don't care about yourself, if you don't love yourself as the type of thing that can come into being, um, then, then why would you give yourself care that works? Right? Yeah. How, would, how would you motivate yourself to give yourself care that works? So it was interesting. I just wrote this out and then I saw that, okay, at the top, you've got these two things, right? That have become so meaningful through your work and through Jordan's work. Um, right. And they give us this, this idea. And then, and then what, I, what, what occurred to me is like, if you, can, if you have that deep knowledge and you have the right motivation and you can find that place between these two things, it's like, that's, that's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's flow state. Yeah, pretty much. I, I, but it, I mean, it can also become like an anagogic thing. Yeah. Because if the self-knowledge is aspirational, Socratic, yeah. it's also moving towards self-transcendence. And so I ultimately can only transcend through other people, right? I have to, I have to, right? I have to care for others and not exploit them or use them. I have to actually value them for how they are other than me if I'm actually going to be able to transcend myself. So the self-knowledge, that's what I see in Socrates. I see the, the, the self-knowledge that you're pointing out and then the concern for others and the midwiping of others. He knew that that was the way, the, the ultimate way in which he, he could send, self-transcend and, and aspire uh, towards the gods as he was always trying to do. So I think that the, the, these things are really tightly bound together. Um, this is all the stuff I'm, I'm working on and exploring for after Socrates, okay. a lot of this. So I, again, thank you. This is extremely helpful for again getting me to try and get you know what's what 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 what's the phenomenology, what's the functionality of dialogos, and and then what would dialectic, meaning a psychotechnology that affords dialogos, look like. Um, and so um, again, this is so apropos. It's uh, uh, what I'm currently working on. That's beautiful. Well, we have an invader. Let me bring her up here for a second. Your daughter again? This is Katie. Hi, Katie. Hey. hey, Katie. I'm on the phone. Hello. How are you? S E C M. She's she's telling you about her nanny and how they probably went on a trip. Okay, Katie, you need to let me finish my call, okay? S E C M. And we're back. Now the nanny knows I'm in here and on the call. I like the way, and this is one of the things that I'm interested in. This I like the way we are exemplifying the the, the very thing I'm now talking about. Right, you know, the we're exemplifying something I'm trying to explicate in this notion of dialogos, yeah. uh, and uh, and this sort of, again, the, the, this the, this process that creates something that takes on a life of its own and takes us uh, in, in an interesting place, uh, and again, what affords that, and 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 what also what undermines it is something I'm really trying to zero in on, um, and get really clear about it. Yeah. So. It was interesting for me to to propose this call to you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, it was going to start with me giving you a criticism, right? A, a um, justified one. Yeah, and that that uh, that's that's an interesting thing. And you know, um, for me, there's a little tension, which is interesting because I I have been deeply influenced by your work, and I've also been deeply interested by uh, Dr. Peterson's work, right? Yeah. But um, in some sense, it's hard to displace Peterson because I, I consumed him starting in 2016, right? Yeah. And I consumed this massive amount of it. Yeah, your first, your first deep thinker is like your first love. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a template. It really is. It really yeah. is, yeah. But then you and I have become friends, right? And I know that there's, a, there's some tension between your perspective on these things and between his. And yep. there's curiosity about that. But there's also, like, what I guess I personally was worried about is in in exposing the potential of a disagreement around our interpretation of his work, um, 
to, to actually being dialogued about, I myself might be reactive in a way that would, uh, that would shut down the potential for us to, to have a dialogue that was actually valuable and meaningful together. I didn't find that in you at all. I thought we, we very quickly got into resonance. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I, 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 I mean, I think it's, it's, it's the, you know, the forbearance and the flexibility you brought to it. And I hope I, I did too. Um, I mean, I, I, I am very much trying to live this idea of valuing the process over the position. Yeah. Um, and um, so, I mean, I'm glad that uh, it, it seems to have worked. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. What was interesting is because I think I was able to do it in part because I've consumed your work. <laughs> ah, well, thank you for saying I, that. So there is... So there is that that sense of the potential for me to start to come from a reactive place as we initiate the conversation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then there is the 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 voice in the back of the head, right, running the program of how do we do the dialogue that Verveke and Jordan Hall and Langstock yep, right. I'm sitting here talking to you, disagreeing with you. And, and asking myself how to get into as much empathy with where you're coming from as possible yeah, so that yeah. we can open the space yeah. in conversation where we um, find something interesting and new rather than, than butting heads against my position versus yours. I think not only interesting and new, but better. I like the, I think, like I said, I think this reformulation of the criticisms and the issues and we came to a convergence on it. I think it is much more helpful Mm -hmm. um, than what was originally presented. I think Anderson would like it too. I know him well enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is actually really good. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I like what you're doing here because this is also part of the, the work that I'm doing now. When people move from exemplification and then they get the reflective moment and then they do some explication on of what they've been exemplifying and then they, they try to you know, bring that back into the dialogic process itself. Um, yeah, that, 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 I'm really interested in that because you see a lot of these practices actually doing that kind of, you know, we, uh, Chris and I in, the, in the, the thing we recently wrote, Chris Pietro and I, we talk about this as the theory theoria move. You're in the theoria, you're actually into sort of the contemplative, right, the seeing and the doing, and then you step back and do the theory and you try to pick up on what you're exemplifying and you explicate it. And then you, between the exemplification and the explication, you try to adduce something, you try to draw something out from each other. And I'm sort of, I'm interested, like I said, the, the, uh, bringing language, you know, to this and it, to really try to help afford its enhancement. That, that's, that's really what uh, is really uh, central in, uh, in my, in my, in my work right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful. I think that we need it so much, you know, part of this, this idea of the heroic archetype, this idea of, of how do we engage in logos? How do we construct um, order that is good out of that, the undifferentiated potential? Um, so much of that has to do with our ability to, to articulate, but also to interact. Yes. So to relate and, and, and engage with each other as we've been talking about in relationship. This is what it strikes me is um, if we take on this idea that, uh, that we are, that we want to be our most heroic selves, right? If we want to move towards that aspirational divine double, we, um, and we have these, these dual roles, which is one to see what is, is happening that is potentially threatening and undifferentiated and chaotic. And also what is becoming stagnant and tyrannical. Yep, yep, yep. And then we have these two, two pathways to confronting that, the pathway of, of the warrior and the pathway of, um, of, of kindness, right, of, of holding. Uh, and maybe the sage is the balance between them, perhaps. Yeah, um, I think so. I think I, I like that way of, of putting it, yeah, very much. So then what is the process by which we begin to do that? And it seems to me that... Um, I think there's a physical element, and obviously that's a big aspect of what I'm, I, I've been, you know, pushing. You know, you know I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, in my mind that that's, that's correct. But this, this process seems so interesting to me, and it, it seems so interesting to me in particular at this, this moment historically, because it seems like um, debate and dialogue is, 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 is in a very bad way in our culture in general. Yeah. 
Um, and so this idea of recognizing the necessity of networking the minds, right? And seeing from the perspective of someone who, uh, who, who doesn't share all of your ideas, right? It seems incredibly powerful. And, and I think that, that the layering of the emotional, psychological, spiritual, and cognitive logical into an approach to this, uh, it's really, it's really amazing work uh, that you're doing and, and, and the way that it's connecting with all these other people. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to, it, it just, it's just struck me as, as a very interesting way of expressing this, this archetype that we've been talking about. I think so. Um, uh, and thank you for saying that. I, that was, that was very gracious of you. <clears throat> I mean, the, the work I'm doing with Peter Lindbergh and with Guy Senstock and with Jordan Hall and Devin Rush and, you know, all, all the, I mean, again, I want to give, I want to give credit to the network. Right now, the, the dialogue that you and I had yeah. also is clear, uh, for me, a very helpful example of the kind of thing I've been talking about. Um, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. Um, I, I think this is really... Um, it's really important work. Um, sorry, that sounds self-promotional, but I, I think this is, what I mean to say is like, I think this is very needed. It's very needed work. Um, and I, 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 I am encouraged by the fact that uh, many people are turning to it um, and their forums turning to it. And, um, and so, um, like, yeah, I, I, that, that, that's, uh, that, that, that deeply encourages me. So uh, I guess I'll, that's what I'd, I want to say about that. Cool. I should get going soon, by the way. It's, uh, it's Yeah, I was just actually thinking that um, this feels like a conversation that has run a course towards a, an ending. Um, yeah. It feels like there's other things that we could talk about, but we would be moving into a new... Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. This, uh, this is... This is the end of this particular this particular yeah. element of the conversation. So I think for an episode for people to watch, um, it's a really beautiful place to to bring it to an end. I agree, and of course we will be talking again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rafe. Thank you so very much. Thank you, John. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.